Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, in August 1956, on his way to becoming the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley performed 25 shows in seven Florida cities in just nine days. You have to put on a show for people. In other words, people can buy your records and hear you sing. They don't have to come out to hear you sing. You have to put on a show in order to draw a crowd. We'll look at who was staying in St. Augustine's Alcazar Hotel in the 1890s. The uh, first page here, which is November of 1892, the first signature is Henry Morrison Flagler. And we'll discuss a pre-Columbian copper tool discovered near Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lone Street, that heartbreak hotel where I'll be. I'll be just a lonely baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be just a lonely. I could die. An advertisement in the August 10, 1956 Florida Times-Union newspaper called Elvis Presley, Mr. Dynamite, the sensation of the nation, and the nation's only atomic-powered singer. Presley would soon be known simply as the king of rock and roll. During a pivotal point in Presley's career, the future superstar did a series of performances throughout Florida. The tour came one month after his nationally televised appearance on The Steve Allen Show and one month before his first appearance for an audience of millions on The Ed Sullivan Show. Five months before the 1956 Florida tour, Colonel Tom Parker took over management of Presley's career. The singer had enjoyed big hits with the songs Heartbreak Hotel and I Want You, I Need You, I Love You, just before his Florida concerts, Presley released his rock and roll version of the Big Mama Thornton blues song, Hound Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, Colonel Parker organized an exhausting tour schedule for Presley. In just nine days, Presley performed 25 shows in seven Florida cities. The tour began in Miami with seven shows at the Olympia Theater on August 3rd and 4th. The next day, Presley did two shows at the Armory in Tampa, followed by three shows at the Polk Theater in Lakeland on August 6th. On August 7th, Presley performed three times at the Florida Theater in St. Petersburg, followed by two shows at Orlando's Municipal Auditorium on August 8th. The next day, Presley was in Daytona Beach for two shows at the Peabody Auditorium. The tour concluded with six performances at Jacksonville's Florida Theater, August 10th and 11th. The Tampa Sunday Tribune headline on August 12th declared record 100,000 paid tribute to Elvis in 1956 Florida tour. Tickets for the performances were $1.25 in advance, $1.50 at the door. Reporter Paul Wilder wrote, 
No matter what newspaper you look in, you would find reports of near-riotous conditions prevailing when he was appearing in that town. There is nothing in Florida entertainment to compare with him, and the startling impact of Presley's sway over Florida's teenagers, and many adults too, is something unique in the state's social, economic, and entertainment life. Many Florida reporters were harsh in their criticism of Presley. In an interview backstage in Lakeland on August 6th, Presley discussed his relationship with the press. Talking about reporters, there's a rumor has gotten out that I don't have no time, no time for reporters. That I just answer with a yes or a no. And it's very untrue. I, I, I have my first one yet to turn down. I've never turned down a reporter. I've never turned down a disc jockey. I know that I can't visit radio stations like I'd like to, but I don't have time. And uh, I have never turned down a reporter. I have never been uh, uh, sassy to one. In fact, I've never been sassy to anyone. And uh, I've always stayed and talked to them as long as they, as long as they wanted to talk. And uh, Why? I, I admire them. Well, because Why? they keep us in business. I mean, the newspaper columns, the reporters, the disc jockeys, they are, we all work hand in hand. Compared with the sexually suggestive choreography of some popular music stars today, Presley's gyrating hips, shaking legs, and trademark sneer seem quaint. In 1956, however, many found Presley's movements on stage to be scandalous. The singer had been nicknamed Elvis the Pelvis. I don't like to be called Elvis the Pelvis, but uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most childish expressions I've ever heard coming from an adult. Elvis the Pelvis, but uh, uh, if they want to call me that, I mean, there's nothing I can do about it, so I just have to accept it. It's like you got to accept the good with the bad, the bad with the good. You have to put on a show for people. Yeah. In other words, people can buy your records and hear you sing, and they don't have to come out to hear you sing. You have to put on a show in order to draw a crowd. Yeah. If I just stood out there and sang and never moved a muscle, the people would say, well, my goodness, I can stay home and listen to his records. That's right. But you have to give them a show, something to uh, talk about. Now, in this show, it, we've established that it is a show that you put on. Now, how did you get the idea for the rapid amount of action? Did, have you ever, have, never seen anybody move around as much? No, sir, I never have. Uh, I just never had any old showman advise you you ought to do it? Nobody has ever told me. Uh-huh. Where is the first time that you used the the rapid My very action. first appearance uh, after I started recording, I was on a show in Memphis where I started doing that. And I was on a show as an extra added single, a big jamboree in an outdoor theater, an outdoor auditorium, and uh, and I came out on stage and I, I was I was scared stiff. Mm -hmm. It was my first big appearance in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. And I came out and I was doing a fast type tune, uh, one of my first records, and. Uh, Everybody was hollering, and I didn't know what they were hollering at. Everybody was screaming and everything. And then uh, I came off stage, and my manager told me that uh, he was hollering because I was wiggling my legs. Mm -hmm. And I was unaware of, of who was your manager at that time. Bob, Bob Neal. Bob Neal. Okay. And uh, and so I went back out for an encore, and I uh, I did a little more. And uh, the more I did, the harder they went. Before Presley's shows in Jacksonville, Reverend Robert Gray of Trinity Baptist Church said that Presley had achieved a new low in spiritual degeneracy. Presley was insulted by the accusation. I was raised up in a little Assembly of God church. Uh -huh. And some uh, character called them holy rollers. Oh, I see. Uh, 
Well, and, and, and that's where that got started. I, I always attended a church where people sang, stood up and sang in the choir, and and, uh, and worship God. You know. Uh huh. And I uh, I have never used the expression holy roller. Do you still attend church? Uh, every opportunity I get, I'm, I don't have as much uh, opportunity as I used to because I'm on the road most of the time. In the Holiness Church, do they have peppy music? Peppy music? Mm -hmm. They sing uh, hymns and spirituals. They sing spiritual songs. Do they sing them at fast tempo? Uh, yes, sir, they do sometimes. Mm -hmm. did, did that has, how long have you been going to that church? Ever since I was old enough to walk. About five or six, huh? Yes, sir. And uh, do you think you transfer some of that rhythm into your... That's not it. That's not it at all. There was some article came out where I got the jumping around from my religion. My religion has nothing to do with what I do now. Uh-huh. Because the type of stuff I do now is not religious music. And my religious background has nothing to do with the way I sing. Judge Marion Gooding threatened to have Presley arrested for impairing the morals of minors if he didn't restrict his suggestive movements during the Jacksonville performances. Presley remembered the incident during his 1968 television special. Hey, Elvis, the finger was... No, yeah, that's all I can move in Florida. Yeah, that's right. Now, the police filmed a show one time in Florida because um, the PGA, the YMCA, or somebody, they thought I was... <laughs> something and uh, they said man he's got to be crazy so uh they they uh the police came out and they filmed the show so i couldn't move i had to stand still the only thing i moved was my little finger like that you know the whole show Judge Gooding was apparently satisfied with Presley's modifications. After watching the show himself, Gooding allowed his three daughters to attend. Backstage in St. Petersburg on August 7, 1956, Presley spoke with local disc jockey Bob Hoffer. Well, kids, like I promised you about uh, oh, 24 hours ago from this very minute, I would do my best to get the boy himself to say something to you. And uh, lots of you have written and asked if uh, we couldn't get him on the show. Well, the problem there is that the guy just has to have a little time of his own, and he has little enough of it. So uh, he is gracious enough to uh, ask us to come up here and talk with him in the dressing room. And uh, there are, let's see, three of his buddies here, and Joanne is over in the corner. So uh, you're in good company uh, with Elvis Presley. And Elvis, I'm awfully glad to uh, take this opportunity to talk with you a little bit. Well, thank you very much, Bob. It's a pleasure, too. And uh, uh, is that your wife over in the corner? That is my wife, Joanne, yes. Woo! <laughs> now, Joanne will be the envy of everybody at the platter party tonight. She has been wooed at by Elvis Presley, and I thank you, Elvis. I agree with you, incidentally. Sure I do. Uh, you know what I was impressed, first of all, when I saw you? Uh, you're a taller boy than I had figured. How tall are you, incidentally? Uh, even six foot. Are you? I had uh, not pictured you as uh, quite so tall. You, uh, what sports have you indulged in any when you were in school? Uh, well, I tried to play football, and I never could make it, and I was very good at it. So I gave it up for the get fiddle slinging, huh? Yeah. I don't, I don't blame you a miserable bit, not uh, as well as you've done. What I would like to uh, find out from you, I know that uh, probably your tough problem uh, on these tours is uh, getting enough rest to uh, to do the job you do on the stage. How do you manage the confounded rest on these tours? Well, I, I don't. In fact, I don't any of us get much rest. We just 
And it's a lot worse when you when you do two or three shows a day, three and four. We do we do four sometimes. So you just have to catch it when you can. Is that right? That's right. And uh, and then usually when it's all over with, there's a lot of people around, and uh, you just don't get much rest at all. So uh, just between tours, you've got to climb in the sack somewhere and uh, and rest a little while. Is that the idea? Yes, that's right. We average maybe four or five hours a night. Where do you call home now? Uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Your parents up there now in the nice big house you bought them? Yes, sir. Good. I heard a lot about that, and it's a fine thing. Something else I heard about, too, at a piece of your property, I heard the bad luck you had with the Lincoln over in Tampa. Is that true? About uh, in the garage? Oh, uh, that wasn't too bad. They, uh, some of the kids got my gas cap and some of my cigarette lighters, but that was the fault of the garage. I see. Somebody said they got in the uh, hubcaps, too. Is that not true? No, that's, that's Oh, that's am I so glad. I could just see you buying four hubcaps for a Lincoln. That would cost more than the car I drive, believe me. You well, out of, go ahead. The, the, I, I think the Continental hubcaps are fifty dollars each. <laughs> That's two hundred dollars for a set, you know. Wow. What's this uh, three hundred fifty dollar hood ornament you were telling Ann Rowe of the same? Yes, uh, the ornament on the on the Lincoln Continental is three hundred fifty dollars uh, because it's white gold plated. Yeah. Wow. Listen, the one thing I did want to check with you on, I know you don't get a chance to keep up with things too much uh, when you're on the tour. Did you know that uh, Ed Sullivan was injured in an automobile accident? Yes, sir. I read, I read that in the paper. It is. Uh, he is not going to be able to make his show until the 19th of August. Is that right? That's the first one he'll be able to make. Yeah. I thought you might be interested in that. And when are you due uh, on the Sullivan show again? Uh, well, my, uh, my first one is September 9th. 9th, huh? Maybe have a new platter out for Victor by that time? I doubt it. You doubt it, really? I shouldn't have because uh, I just, just had a release, see. Oh, yes, and you've done pretty well with it, too. Over a million copies in something like two weeks for Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel. Is that right? Yeah. Three gold platters you've got yourself now for Victor, and I, I think it's a Four. fine thing. Four! Excuse me! Four. Uh, I got one for uh, Heartbreak Hotel, Yeah. one for Hound Dog, one for I Want You, I Need You, I Love You, and one for my album. The album, too, has gone over a million. No kidding. That's almost fantastic in the record business, isn't it? Hoffer told Elvis that Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel were voted the number one and number two songs in St. Petersburg by his listeners. Presley's Whirlwind 1956 tour of Florida was covered by National Press, helping to further the singer's fame. He would soon be known as the king of rock and roll. Don't be cruel to a heart that's true. Don't be cruel to a heart that's true. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to read our Florida Frontiers blog, listen to archived editions of this program, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. You can become a member of the Florida Historical Society to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
Ben, the Leitner Museum in St. Augustine is a fascinating place to visit, but long before it was a museum, that building was the Alcazar Hotel. Yeah, that's correct. It was originally constructed in 1887, and it was one of uh, Henry Flagler's original flagship hotels, which would become an integral part of the Florida East Coast hotel system that would eventually stretch all the way down to Key West with the completion of the Overseas Railway uh, and actually over to the Bahamas as well. Uh, but the Alcazar and the uh, Ponce de Leon Hotel were the first of Henry Flagler's experiments, uh, you could say, in the hotel industry and the building up of Florida infrastructure in the early uh, late 19th and early 20th century. Now, the Alcazar hotel itself is architecturally distinct for a number of reasons. It's what we call a, a Spanish Renaissance revival style. And it was designed by two young architects by the name of John Carrere and Thomas Hastings. And the firm of uh, Carrere and Hastings really got their start with these commissions. Now, Thomas Hastings knew Henry Flagler uh, in the early 1880s. His father was a Presbyterian minister, so they were kind of ran in the same circle. So Henry Flagler uh, really gave them their first opportunity to uh, display their talents, and they did so with the construction of the Alcazar Hotel. Uh, what's also interesting about this particular building is that they used a new technology. They used poured concrete, and when you look at the building today, it kind of gives it a uh, sort of a medieval castle-like feel, and it fits in very well with the architecture of such an old city as St. Augustine. Uh, so the uh, building was, again, originally constructed in 1887. Uh, the first guests signed the register, uh, the original register, in December of 1887, and that started a almost 50-year career as a hotel. Now, uh, what we have here are a series of postcards, and there are, were tens of thousands of postcards created depicting the uh, uh, Flagler's hotels. But some of the, I think, most striking are the postcards depicting the Alcazar Hotel. And you can see when you would first enter, there's a lavish garden in the northern part of the main entrance. And you have these two very tall spires that are, again, very uh, kind of medieval and European looking. Um, but also distinct would be the large uh, courtyard inside the building. And every room either faced the street or it faced the interior courtyard. So everyone got a beautiful view of the city. But also striking would be the uh, large indoor swimming pool that was in the uh, southern half of the Alcazar Hotel. And at the time, they uh, actually claimed it was the largest indoor swimming pool in the world, which I would absolutely believe it was almost three stories tall. Uh, and the entire room was uh, flooded and created this giant swimming pool. And it was quite an attraction, especially right around the turn of the century. And it's still really a beautiful building. And a lot of these features uh, still exist today. You can see them at the Leitner. Uh, you also have here a register of guests from the Alcazar Hotel. Who are some of the, the people in it? Yeah, that's right. This is a great collection of, of documents, of original documents, because it gives us kind of an idea of, uh, you know, what was the uh, the type of, of person that would have been staying at such a lavish hotel. Uh, and if we see we the uh, first page here, which is November uh, of 1892, the first signature is Henry Morrison mm -hmm. Flagler. And then down at the bottom of the page, we have a uh, member of... of European royalty, a, a baron from the, the Netherlands, came here with his valet on his way south into the frontier. Uh, and as we you know, go through this registrar, it's just peppered with recognizable figures and names. These were the um, prominent folks who developed kind of uh, the, the American industrial age of the late 19th century. Uh, Henry Plant even stayed here. Uh, then we also have wealthy widows of some recognizable figures, including Mrs. Ulysses S. Grant stayed here in 1894. 
We also have uh, Mrs. Uh, Samuel Colt, the heiress of the uh, Colt Firearms Company, which was one of the largest firearms companies in the world. She came here with, uh, it says here, uh, Mrs. Colt and her maid. They stayed in two separate rooms, but uh, stayed here for, for a season. Um, so this really was kind of a... Um, the place to come during the winter months. And, and again, if you look through, you'll see people who came from all over the world, from Europe, uh, folks from London, uh, from all over the Northeast, Philadelphia, New York, Washington, D.C. Um, we had people from, from Tallahassee, state officials. They all stayed, at least at one night, uh, they stayed at the Alcazar Hotel. Some of the penmanship in this register is, is really amazing, very uh, ornate signatures here. As we mentioned, the Alcazar Hotel is now the Leitner Museum. How did that come about? Well, it's really kind of a fitting end, I guess, to the hotel era. So in the early 1930s, the Alcazar uh, ceased existence as a hotel. It closed its doors, and it kind of marked the end of uh, the Gilded Age and, and the old industrialists were uh, no longer you know, coming down to Florida for these lavish month-long vacations. But in 1947, a publisher from Chicago by the name of Otto C. Leitner, who you mentioned the Leitner Museum, he decided to purchase the entire building. And Leitner had collected a lot of these Gilded Age artifacts. So he had beautiful stained glass pieces from Louis Comfort Tiffany, a number of, of different artifacts, and, and he was a collector of uh, things that people collected. So he had these large collections of kind of oddities at the time, but now we really treasure because they, they're somewhat ephemeral and would have been destroyed or, or lost when a lot of these large uh, mansions kind of were, were destroyed uh, into the 20th century. So he moved his collection to what he then renamed the Leitner Museum, opened the museum two years later, and then gave it to the city of St. Augustine. Uh, so the city now uses it partially as their city hall, and the rest of the structure is used as a museum. Uh, so visitors to St. Augustine can now uh, walk around the bottom of what was then the largest indoor pool in the world and kind of get a sense of uh, you know, what it would have been like to be uh, wealthy and, and travel to Florida at that time. It really was a, a whole other world, um, very different from what we might understand. Um, and I might note, too, at the very uh, end of this uh, register, half of the, the bound volume is dedicated uh, simply to the register of, of visitors. When they checked in, uh, a signature, usually their room number. Uh, but in the back, we also have a register of folks who visited the swimming pool and the Turkish baths, which uh, the Alcazar was famous for. And in the very last page from 1911, we have a few passages denoting the volume of uh, towels that would have been lent out to visitors and then the numbers that came back. And you notice here we have uh, 76 towels that went out one day, but only 75 came back. Uh, so even back then, the wealthy were stealing towels from hotels. <laughs> All right. Well, it's a great place to visit, a fascinating place to uh, visit even today. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Sleep well, we'll thank the small hotel. We'll creep into our little cell. This is Florida Frontiers. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at a pre-Columbian copper tool discovered near Jacksonville. 
And this particular cell, which is essentially, uh, you could call it an axe head type shape, is made out of copper. And it uh, was never used for cutting down trees. This is a ceremonial piece, a trade item of some significance made out of copper. It turns out that this is associated with, or often found with maybe burials of some very elite uh, warrior type priest. It's uh, clearly what we might, we call a in this case, in the context of Mount Royal, it would be a Mississippian uh, culture type of, of artifact. That was George Long from the University of Central Florida telling me about a pre-Columbian Indian tool made of copper on display at the Silver River Museum and Environmental Education Center in Ocala. It was found at an archaeological site at Mount Royal outside of Jacksonville on the St. Johns River. We often hear about the Copper Age in human civilization that began roughly 10,000 years ago. Most civilizations around the world mined copper. Copper is a naturally occurring metal that is malleable and can be crafted into numerous objects. Human societies in Europe, Africa, and the Americas all worked with copper. And the copper tool on display at the museum is a celt. Dr. John Endonino from Eastern Kentucky University tells us what a celt is. Celts are a kind of tool often used in woodworking. You might think of them kind of as an axe. Um, They can do heavy cutting or they can do lighter cutting, generally of wood. Um, The manufacturing of a celt depends largely on what it's made from. A shell celt would just um, have to be, a segment would be extracted from the larger shell, uh, usually of a conch um, that it came from, and then it would be ground on some kind of hard abrasive stone until the proper shape and cutting edge were achieved. Here, Dr. Indonino explains what this copper celt would have meant to the Indian societies of Florida. The way that a celt is perceived other than a tool depends largely on where you're at. As an example, in Florida, there is no greenstone. There is no copper available in the national environment. So any celts made from greenstone or copper must have come from someplace else. And being that they are relatively rare, uh, they would have served either a social or perhaps ideological purpose in addition to the obvious um, use that they could perform. And that they were used in areas other than day-to-day activities like cutting down trees or making canoes is the fact that you find copper cells and greenstone cells in burial mounds in later pre-Columbian context indicates that they weren't necessarily used as tools, but they were social and status items. George Long speculates how this celt might have been made. Copper is heated, and it's, um, it's heated and hammered. They probably have some pure copper, but most of it, I think, would probably be smelted, uh, heated until the copper ran out of the, out of the matrix, and then you would... Uh, eventually keep preheating it and hammering on it. Dr. Gerald Milanich, Emeritus Professor at the University of Florida, leaves us with why this find in Florida is so important. Not only did Florida Indians, like the St. John's people, know how to use their environment, but they knew about everybody else. I'm sure there were stories that there were uh, trading expeditions. It may even been that chiefly individuals took journeys to go and and meet with other groups and one of the things they did was trade we in Florida we see objects that come that are made from copper that was we know was mined around the Great Lakes area at about uh, 500 BC in other words 
Indians up there are mining copper, and then you cold hammer it into copper beads, and they get traded down, perhaps to somebody you know in Illinois, and then they get traded. Uh, it's not necessarily that Florida Indians went to uh, the Great Lakes, but they might well have traded uh, with people who came down from Alabama and Georgia who got this stuff from somebody in Kentucky who got it from Ohio who got it from Illinois. But the trade networks reached uh, certainly up into the Great Lakes area. I interviewed George Long, Dr. Gerald Milanich, Dr. John Indonino, and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Find it on iTunes and YouTube. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Participate in the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.